Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 375, Life and Death Politics, but mostly death. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. And right now, members will find episode two of the life of William of Normandy on the members feed. Over there, we're learning about how young William grew up in a court that was almost as cutthroat and bloody as any battlefield. And we discuss what it must have been like for a child to see his family betray each other over and over and over again. You should see me in the crowd. And if you'd like to listen to that episode or any of the other members' episodes, you can sign up for membership over at thebritishhistorypodcast.com for about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to Brandon, Dakota, and Fred for signing up already. For the first time in a long time, Wales was experiencing a time of internal peace, thanks in large part to its unification under King Griffith. Gruffith was also newly married to a woman named Eldgith, who was the daughter of the newly restored Earl Elfgar of East Anglia. And Eldgith was a woman who, according to William of Jumiege, was a perfect 10, or actually probably an 11. Eldgith was Eldgadam, and pretty soon the royal couple would have a daughter named Nest, as well as as many as three sons. So lately, everything was coming up Gruffith. But not so much for the Godwins. Elfrich was one of the Godwins' main adversaries. And now King Gruffith, the king of all of Wales, was married to his daughter. Probably not what the Godwins had been hoping for, considering that Gruffith had a pretty good relationship with Swain Godwinson. But that relationship apparently didn't transfer to Swain's siblings. And so here, on the cusp of a multinational alliance... The Godwins not only found themselves on the outside looking in, there's a good chance that they're going to be its rivals. Not great. Making matters worse, there is the issue of succession. A kingdom without a clear heir to the throne was a kingdom teetering on the brink. And Edward lacked a clear successor. And this had been noticed by the international community, which was why some of the more distant claimants from places like Normandy and Scandinavia have been signaling their interests in the kingdom. So that was an additional threat on top of the already existing danger posed by Wales and their increasingly powerful king. And the only real chance England had to stand its ground was if it had strong leadership. And so the last thing it needed right now was a succession crisis. As such, the question of who would rule England after Edward died was on the forefront of the minds of many in court. And while there were likely multiple factions with ideas of how to handle this issue, we know that one of them was most concerned with finding a claimant on the English royal line, which meant that they were searching for members of the House of Wessex, preferably members of that house who were also descendants from one of the English kings. And they found one. Edmund Ironsides, King Athelred's capable son, had reigned as King of England for less than a year before he died, with some accounts claiming that he was stabbed to death while sitting on the toilet. So, not a glorious reign or a glamorous end, but he had been a King of England, and he had two sons who were sent into exile after Canute claimed England. 
and one of those sons still lived. Edward the Exile Not only that, but this exiled son had married well to a woman named Agatha, a relative of Emperor Henry II and possibly the daughter of King Stephen of Hungary. And in addition to finding himself a good match, he'd also secured his family prominent positions in the Magyar court of Hungary. So, Edward the Exile was from the right family, he'd married well, he was experienced in politics, and he'd done rather well for himself, all in spite of a comparatively disadvantaged start. He was perfect. So King Edward sent Bishop Eldred to go meet with King Henry III of Germany, quite possibly to begin this process of bringing Edward the Exile back. And you might pause here to wonder, why Germany? Why go to King Henry III? Well, it's complicated, but basically, thanks to a daughter of Canute marrying the son of King Conrad of Germany, now the two crowns had some level of connection. And while she did die relatively soon after the marriage and they didn't have any kids, the fact was that medieval marriages tended to work a bit like treaties, so that link was still there. The problem, though, was that Germany and Hungary were on the outs. And since Edward the Exile was in Hungary, Germany probably wasn't the best way to start the process. Furthermore, Edward the Exile had been doing pretty well, and the last time that he was in England, things had not gone great. And he had plenty of family members who died on that throne, with some of them, like his father, only lasting months. So you have to wonder how enticing this offer might have really been. So... At the end of the day, Bishop Eldred returned to England empty-handed. But less than a year later, in October of 1056, King Henry of Germany died. And that seems to have spurred on a renewed attempt. Because one month after Henry's death, we see a familiar face appearing in charters on the continent. And it wasn't Bishop Eldred. This time, England was bringing out the big guns. Harold Godwinson was there, and he was accompanied by his brother-in-law, the formidable Count Baldwin V of Flanders. Now, records indicate that Harold, like his brother Tostig, went on pilgrimage to Rome. So his presence on the continent very well may have been connected to that. However, historian Frank Barlow suspects that the entire trip might have been a twofer. And I think he might be right and that at least half of the purpose of going to the continent was actually to negotiate the return of Edward the Exile. And truthfully, when you look at how the scribes write about Harold's pilgrimage, it does seem to be a bit perfunctory and unimportant, as opposed to how they talked about Tostig's trip to Rome, which was written about with much more religious overtones. So it's possible that this split in how the scribes related their pilgrimages had to do with the monks being a bit put out that Harold had been focused on other, more political matters, rather than being focused on spiritual matters. But however it came about, in early 1057, Edward the Exile, the only surviving son of King Edmund Ironsides and the strongest English claimant to the throne of England, landed on English shores for the first time in about 40 years. He'd been an infant when he was sent away, so this was a homeland that he almost certainly had no memory of. It was a foreign place filled with foreign people who spoke an unfamiliar language. And yet, 
he was the strongest English candidate on the line of succession. And so Edward the Exile was back, along with his whole family. Suddenly, the House of Wessex was growing once again. And this return of Edward, along with many other events, is why I don't believe the claim that was made posthumously by the Normans, that William was actually the designated heir for England. There was clearly an effort to find an English successor. And not just an effort, they literally brought King Edmund's son back to England. The court of Edward the Confessor was obviously working to establish their successor, should Edward die. And Edward the Exile was actually an excellent solution to that issue. And then, on April 19th of 1057, just days after his arrival and before his meeting with the king, Edward the Exile died. Damn it. He was only in his 40s, and the Chronicle doesn't tell us how or why he died. But it's clear that the scribes were upset. They describe how the hopes of England were dashed, writing, quote, Alas, this was a rueful time, and injurious to all this nation, that he ended his life so soon after he came to England, to the misfortune of this miserable people, end quote. And reading that, I feel like we've all been there, right? But you can really understand the despair that they must have been feeling. I mean, the English had come this close to establishing a clear successor within the House of Wessex, one that was the son of a king of England. And he was apparently competent and connected to power on the continent. And he was such a good choice that Earl Harold Godwinson appears to have gotten directly involved. And yet, it was all for naught. It was a tough day for the Godwins and for England in general. Though, it was probably a pretty good day for a few overseas claimants who had their eye on the island. And speaking of the Godwins, up in Northumbria, everyone was getting increasingly irritated with Tostig. This guy was trying to stop blood feuds, which is just absolutely ridiculous. I mean, if he can't kill a stranger over something his grandfather did, was there even any point in being a dynasty? The man was taking all the nobility out of being noble. And he was trying to enact these changes through laws, rather than through a bit of good old-fashioned backstabbing. <sighs> so lame. Though, unlike Earl Seward, Earl Tostig was at least keeping his hands out of Scotland. And that was appreciated. So, for now, Tostig and his namby-pamby southern ways were being tolerated. But speaking of Scotland... Staying out of that whole mess wasn't just politically wise. It was also one of the best things that Tostig could do to extend his lifespan. Because Scotland was going off. Last time we checked in with them, Earl Seward and Malcolm Bighead had launched a war against King Macbeth, which had resulted in the death of Seward's son and heir, as well as the expulsion of Macbeth and the crowning of King Malcolm Bighead. Now, as we've discussed earlier, it's highly unlikely that Macbeth stopped being king simply because Malcolm was crowned. Instead, it appears that he retreated to his stronghold in the Highlands, and from there, he continued his war against Malcolm. And it had been three years since Macbeth's defeat at the Battle of the Seven Sleepers. And unfortunately, there isn't much information about his activities during that period. Nor Malcolm's. But considering the stakes involved, 
and the character of the two men who claimed to be the King of the Scots. I'm fairly certain that the fighting raged the entire time. Just as it had done during that quiet time in the records when Macbeth was hunting Malcolm and his brother, or when Crinan was fighting against Macbeth, or any other number of times when the scribes found something else to do with their ink, but we see evidence of internal conflicts. And specifically, there are hints of a prolonged three-year civil war between the Highlands under Macbeth and the Lowlands under Bighead. And it seems to have either taken the form of a protracted open war between two blocks, north and south, or it was Macbeth waging a guerrilla war and trying to drum up support for his efforts to reclaim the throne. Either way, though, it was a dramatic reversal of fortune for Macbeth who had spent the early part of his reign hunting Malcolm through the south, and now it was Malcolm who was hunting Macbeth, likely through the north. And I suspect that the reason that this was going on so long was that King Malcolm had learned from his forebears, and he was careful to avoid the dangers of Murray. Far too many Scottish kings, including some of Malcolm's own family members, had met their ends because they thought that they could march into the highlands and bring a mare to heel. And it's an absolute tragedy that we don't know more about what was going on at this point. Because it seems to me that these two power blocks, the North with Macbeth and the South with Malcolm, were locked into a deadly game of chess, each looking for an opportunity for an advantage and to kill their rival. It must have been nerve-wracking, and it would be fascinating to know more. Unfortunately, the record goes quiet on this for three years until finally an opportunity to tip the balance presented itself. And we have reports from various chroniclers of what happened next, but none of them provide many details. From what little information we're given, it seems that Malcolm got word of Macbeth's location. It turns out he was just north of the mount, and a village called Lymphanon. And it isn't clear why he was there. It's possible that he was just traveling through the village on his way south to engage with Malcolm. Though it is just as possible that he was in hiding, and he thought that this little village, so close to the south, would be the last place that Malcolm would look for him. Who knows? But whatever the plan was, somebody snitched. And Malcolm had his perfect opportunity. Because with Macbeth outside of Murray, he lacked the protection of his homelands. So Malcolm Bighead gathered his soldiers and headed out. John of Forden tells us that by putting his men into a quick march, Malcolm was able to take Macbeth completely by surprise. Shocked by this turn of events, Forden tells us that many of Macbeth's supporters immediately fled. Some sources tell us that there is a battle that followed, but not all sources claim that. And it's genuinely hard to know whether there was a full-blown fight here or not. But even if there was some degree of fighting, it's generally believed that this was a relatively minor affair, far from the massive battles that we've discussed earlier in the show. At most, this seems to have been a minor skirmish that probably wouldn't even merit mention, were it not for one detail that virtually all of the chroniclers agree on. Macbeth was killed. By Malcolm Bighead himself. And Forden adds that the soldiers who remained by his side were killed right along with him. At last, Malcolm had his revenge. But Malcolm's fight for the throne of Scotland wasn't over. 
Macbeth had an heir. And that might surprise you, since we haven't discussed Macbeth having kids. And it's true, Macbeth didn't have any children. But that didn't mean he lacked an heir. Do you remember how Macbeth began his rise to prominence? It was when his cousin, Gilly, had died in that fire along with a bunch of his men. A fire, you might recall, that had Macbeth's fingerprints all over it. Well, when Gilly was barbecued, he was a married man. But once he was a crispy critter, his wife was back on the market. And his wife, Gruach, wasn't just any random widow. She was the granddaughter of King Kenneth III. And Scottish politics didn't just look at a man's political standing when choosing leaders. They also looked at the standing of his wife. And so, probably while Gilly's body was still smoking, Macbeth, who had bigger ambitions, hastily married Gruach. The trick, though, was that she and Gilly already had a child together, a boy named Lilach. And Macbeth might have been a bit shady, but in this case, he seemed to do the, well, Decent isn't exactly the word for it, but not the worst thing, because Macbeth adopted his new stepson. And that is how Lilach ended up becoming Macbeth's heir. And once he was old enough, as a training position, he was granted the more meritum of Murray. And when you look at Lilach's background, he really was a dynastic powerhouse. He was on the southern royal lines through his mother, and he was also on the northern royal lines through his father, Gilly. And he was connected to another branch of those northern lines through his adopted father, Macbeth. Furthermore, he was the only son and heir of the previous king of Scotland. He even had a son of his own, which would provide additional security for the line of succession. So Lilach had a very strong claim to the throne. And it was so formidable that, according to John Forden, Macbeth's relatives proclaimed him king of the Scots in the days following the death of Macbeth, and records indicate that he was actually enthroned at Schoon. However, John adds that Lilach hadn't sought the throne for himself, and he actually didn't have much interest in it. And, despite his family background, he didn't have much support or influence either. Lilach had been serving as the more mayor of Murray, but it doesn't look like he developed many allies outside of Murray. And I have to imagine that all the ruthlessness that marked his father's reign, combined with whatever happened during the three-year period between Macbeth's defeat at the Seven Sleepers and his death at Malcolm's hands, well, I have to imagine that that hadn't done much to improve the popularity of this northern dynasty. Conversely, Malcolm Bighead came from a very well-known family that was still looked upon fondly. He also had a sympathetic story and had widespread support both within Scotland and without. Furthermore, he'd been reigning as a king of the Scots for at least three years now, and Lilac hadn't. He'd just been the son of the king, which would have made him nothing more than a young pretender in the eyes of many. So not great. Unfortunately, just like the reign of Macbeth, the reign of Lilac is poorly documented and we don't know much about what he did or how he ruled. Nor are we given much information about how much land he ruled over. And meanwhile, to the south, barely a month after Macbeth's death, another death rocked the political world of Britain. On September 30th of 1057, Earl Leofric of Mercia died. 
And this actually was a big event because Earl Leofridge had been a mainstay of the English court for at least 60 years. We actually see him witnessing charters back during the reign of Athelred Unred. Now, granted, those 60 years saw Mercia go from one of the main power blocks in the kingdom to a region that, well, no one seemed all that concerned about the Mercians these days. And Leofric and his earldom were at the nadir of their power when he died. And while the Godwins were certainly a force to be reckoned with, I can't help but wonder how much that decline was also due to the fact that Leofric was pretty damn old by the end and may not have had the capacity for administration that he once had had. Either way, though, it was definitely clear that Mercia would need new leadership. And there were some Godwins out there who still lacked earldoms. So... Just kidding. There was no way that King Edward would want such a large territory in the Midlands to land in the Godwins' lap. And he was still king. So he still did have a say in these things. And Leofric did have an heir. An heir who had recently been forgiven and restored at court. And he was also an heir who had established that if he wasn't treated well, he'd hire a bunch of mercs and kickstart an international war. So Earl Elfrich was granted Mercia. And in exchange, he relinquished his control over East Anglia. And that territory was once again placed under the command of Gerth Godwinson. About three months later, on the 21st of December of 1057, Earl Ralph the Timid, the French noble who governed Herefordshire and who had completely bungled the defense of the city, died. And while his lands were closest to Mercia, instead, the earldom of Herefordshire was acquired by Earl Harold Godwinson of Wessex. And there's some debate as to how this happened, when it happened, and why. Some claim the lands were actually seized a couple years earlier, after Ralph bungled things at Hereford. Others, like Frank Stenton, claim he ruled for the next couple years, died, and only then did Harold acquire them. Now interestingly, Ralph does appear to have been on fairly good terms with Harold, as well as the rest of the Godwinsons, when he died. And Ralph did have a son though his son was too young to rule at the time of his death. So one possibility that's been put forward is that Ralph asked Harold to rule the lands in trust until Ralph's son, who actually was also named Harold, was old enough to rule. And we do see Ralph's son ruling over a portion of his father's lands following the conquest. So maybe that's why Harold Godwinson, rather than Elfrich of Mercia, acquired those lands. It's hard to say. But at this point, the Godwins were clearly back on top. That dynasty controlled almost all of England, with even the minor earldoms now coming under their control. Furthermore, for the last few years, we've been seeing Queen Edith take an ever more influential role in court, with her witnessing a large number of charters, and her name was appearing second only to the king on the witness lists. Between her prominence in court and her brother's incredible influence over English politics, it's hard to see this as anything less than the era of the Godwins. And I wonder if it was their influence that led to what happened next. Because with the death of Edward the Exile, the issue of succession was still unsettled. However, 
chief among the available claimants, was Edward the Exile's son, Edgar. And from the records, it appears that young Edgar remained in court, as did his siblings. Not only that, but King Edward granted Edgar an important title, Atheling. And that wasn't just a nickname. That title was an indication that the king saw Edgar Atheling as throne-worthy. And historian Frank Barlow argues that the title of Atheling, combined with the fact that he was being raised in court, suggests that Queen Edith and King Edward had essentially adopted the boy. And when we look at what would happen later, it does appear that young Edgar was seen as the heir to the throne, at least in the eyes of a sizable chunk of court. Now, Edgar Atheling was only five years old at this point, so he wouldn't be ready for the throne for quite some time. But King Edward was only in his 50s, so it's entirely plausible that the English court felt the matter of succession had been settled and that they'd secured their heir, as there was a good chance that Edward would live long enough to see Edgar into maturity. And speaking of Edgar's virtual adoption and his presence in court, there's an interesting aspect to that. We actually don't know where his mother, Agatha, was. We can infer that she might have been in court along with her children, since we are later told of her accompanying her children following the conquest. But the English sources just completely ignore her, while they continue to refer to Edgar as an atheling. And that's odd, because we have a five-year-old boy being elevated and pretty clearly being groomed for higher station, and we have no idea where his mother was and what role, if any, she was playing in this. And we really can't know what the plan was here. We don't know if the scribes just felt she wasn't important enough, which is entirely possible. It's also possible that in the dark spaces of the record, we're seeing indications that Queen Edith and King Edward were basically adopting this kid and pushing his mother into the sidelines. We can't really know for certain. But speaking of succession and weird situations, back in Scotland, the matter of who would rule as the sole uncontested king of the Scots was still very much an open question. After all, they still had two kings. And then, in spring of 1058, just seven months after he was proclaimed king of the Scots, we're told that King Lilach was in Strathbogie. We aren't told specifically why he was there, but... Strathbogie was a major route into Murray, so many scholars suspect that Lilac was probably organizing the military to defend against a southern incursion. But, as is the way with this period, we can't be absolutely certain what he was doing or why he was there. And even worse, we can't even be sure of what happened next. The Annals of Ulster tell us that Lilac was killed in battle against Malcolm Bighead, but... Some other accounts claim he was assassinated. It's not clear, but considering that he posthumously acquired the nickname Lilac Fatus, or Lilac the Stupid, well, he was at least the victim of character assassination. Though, then again, some accounts do tell us that he died due to his lack of caution. So, Lilac might have been a bit Fatus. Either way, though, Lilac was the shortest reigning king of Scotland lasting only seven months. And with his death, Malcolm Bighead's claim was undisputed. And while his name in Gaelic, Malcolm Canmore, did have a certain ring to it, and while it's possible that this was actually an idiom intended to mean he was a great leader or something along those lines, or maybe it just meant he had a big friggin' noggin, 
The fact was, the King Malcolm III of Scotland did sound much more regal. So that's what he went with. But even in victory, Malcolm didn't forget the danger of Murray. Sending armies north into Murray in order to reassert royal authority was still very much on the task list for many Scottish kings. And considering that Lulach's son appears later on in the Annals of Ulster, and he's listed as the King of Murray, and notice that they didn't call him a Mormare, they called him King. Also, considering that the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle speaks of how, 20 years after Lulach's death, King Malcolm III defeated Lulach's son in some kind of battle or situation, and even went and seized his mother... Well, it seems clear that Lilach's son was carrying on the long tradition of independence by the Mormares of Murray. And, as his forebears had done, he appears to have been willing to engage in open conflict to acquire that independence. And apparently, he would be doing that for at least the next two decades. So King Malcolm had a long road to hoe when it came to Murray. And actually, Scottish efforts to subdue Murray would go on for generations. In fact, there are multiple royal burrs built in Murray in the 1100s, and they likely occupied the same sites as previous strongholds for the Mormares of Murray. And building these structures over important sites carried a heavy subtext, indicating that the kings of Scotland were trying to secure their grip on this rebellious territory. And the fact is, strongholds like that aren't cheap to build or maintain especially when they're so far from the Scottish royal lands to the south. And yet, dotting Murray with royal strongholds was apparently seen as worth the effort and the cost, which should give you a sense of how the kings of Scotland viewed the region and how dangerous Murray was considered. But King Malcolm III also had other things on his plate. According to Orderic Vitalis, one of the very first things that King Malcolm did after defeating Lilach and securing the throne of Scotland was to visit the English court in 1059. Now, considering that England had provided him safe refuge while he was in exile, taking a trip there isn't all that surprising. But what happens next is yet another reason why I don't think William of Normandy was intended to be Edward's successor. You see, Malcolm wasn't going to England to visit his former roommate and get a high five for taking back the kingdom. He had other plans. The newly uncontested king was 28 years old, old enough to marry, and so he was going to England to arrange a marriage. And his pick of betrothals is very interesting. As you recall, when King Edmund's son, Edward the Exile, had come to England, he brought his children with him. And Edgar was titled Atheling by the king and appears to have been raised in court. Well, Edgar Atheling's siblings were also there, including his 14-year-old sister, Margaret. Now, Margaret, as the Hungarian daughter of an English king who had only ruled for a few months about 50 years ago, isn't necessarily all that impressive of a match for a king with Malcolm's background and influence. Honestly, if you're just looking at that, marrying Margaret is kind of scraping the barrel here. But if you look at Margaret differently, as the sister of the boy who is next in line for the throne of England, well, suddenly, this betrothal makes a lot more sense. And it seems pretty clear to me that England was building their plan for succession. And it didn't involve Normandy. The trouble, though 
was that Normandy had a plan of their own. You should see me in a crowd. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. You can also join us on Reddit, and you can find links to Reddit and all the other communities in the community section of thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Thanks for listening.